Please turn in your Bibles with me to our text this morning, which comes from uh, the letter of Paul to the Galatians. And we will be looking at chapter 1 and verses 11 to 17 this morning. Chapter 1 and verses 11 to 17. Please then, brothers and sisters, hear with me the reading of God's inerrant and inspired Word. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when He who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son to me, in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia, and returned again to Damascus. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. The Judaizers here are using an age-old tactic in order to get the saints in the churches of Galatia on their side and to believe their position. That age-old tactic that they are using is is to attack the character of their opponent. And here their opponent is is Paul. And so they attack his credentials. They attack his motives. They attack his claim to, to the office of the apostleship. But there's a name for these kind of attacks, isn't there? Right? They are called ad hominem attacks. But attacks that are directed more so on the person than on the position that that person maintains. In our own political climate, oftentimes when there is a, a prominent position up for grabs and you got two or more people going for it, right? we'll turn on the TV and you see commercials with these such attacks, don't we? And why do people use them? Well, they use them because they are, they are very persuasive. Right? They're a, per, a persuasive tool to get people on your side. And they're, they're kind of easy, aren't they? Right? It's, it's much easier to, to kind of lob the grenade at someone else than to have to, to deal with their position or have to defend your own. And so we need to see that, that this is what Paul is dealing with. Right? The, the, the Judaizers are, are attacking not really his uh, position that he's maintaining, but they are attacking him. Right, they are attacking him personally, which is why he spends so much of the first two chapters defending himself. Right, defending that he has come to the saints and the churches of Galatia not as a, a servant of men, but as a servant of God. Right, he's defending his claim to be an apostle of God. Right, he's defending the fact that God divinely gave him this message to proclaim. Right, he's defending his relationship even with the apostles themselves. That he's not at odds with them, 
nor is he at odds with the church at Jerusalem. And so we see in our text immediately, right, Paul launches into this defense of himself. And we see this in verse 11 and 12 where he says this, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now in one sense, especially that last line, I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. In one sense, isn't that true of everyone who believes? Isn't that true of everyone who believes? Right? Anyone who has their eyes opened to the truthfulness of the gospel, right? anyone whose heart has come to embrace the gospel message, has had it revealed to him by God. It's been revealed to him by God, causing us then to, to lay hold to the Good Shepherd. And remember what that word revelation even means. right? We, we looked at that back in our study in the book of Revelation. But that word revelation means to, to uncover, to unveil, or to reveal. And so ultimately it's God in every case, isn't it? Who is the revealer of the gospel to all who believe. Right? So in one sense, it is God who unveils the gospel truth to all who believe. But this is not the sense in which Paul is using it here in our text. Right? This is not the sense that Paul is speaking of. He speaks of the, of the dissimilarity of the manner of his reception of the gospel from that of you and I. Right? He's speaking about the extraordinary manner in which the gospel came to Paul. You see, when the gospel comes to us, although it, it is from God, it comes from man to man, doesn't it? And it comes from, from the voice of a man to, to men, to mankind, and it, and it penetrates right through the work of God into their hearts. It comes from an ambassador to man. But when Paul hears the gospel, it did not come from man to man, but it came directly from God to man. It was Christ Jesus who was Paul's teacher. It was Christ Jesus who, who gave Paul the message, which is why Paul now writes to persuade the saints that the message he declared to them exceeds every other message that they have heard. It exceeds the message of the Judaizers. Because the message that Paul declares isn't even mixed with Paul's own thoughts. But rather, it is the pure doctrine that came directly from, from God to Paul. And it's that same gospel doctrine that you and I believe in as well. For we have been persuaded of that same fact, haven't we? That, that it is God who gave this to Paul. And it is Paul and, and the apostles and ministers today who proclaim God's Word to man. But not only do we believe the Gospel because we are persuaded of that, that's the reason we believe the whole Bible, isn't it? Because Paul himself says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that all of Scripture is God-breathed, or all of Scripture is breathed out by God. And if it wasn't, if, if, if Scripture, if the Gospel was of man, why believe? Why believe? Why believe what Paul has to say over what anyone else has to say? Right? Why believe Paul's Gospel if it's just man's gospel, over and above the Judaizer's gospel. But this is why Paul is trying to, to convey to them here, 
that the message I declare to you does not originate with man. It is not derived from human ingenuity, but rather it originates with God. It's a divine message. Right? This is why we believe. This is why we obey. Not because we look up to a man or men, but because we look up to God. Now, I want us to also look at a distinction that Paul makes again in his letter. One that we pointed out when we looked at verses 1 to 5. See the contrast he makes in verse 13. I did not receive it from any man, but I received it through the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is Paul doing there? With utmost clarity, he is affirming the deity of Christ. He's contrasting man with God. Creator and creature. So here Paul affirms that that Jesus is God. But in seeing that, in seeing that it was God who gave the revelation to Paul, what we need to see is that how even the, the revelation of the Gospel removes all glory from men, doesn't it? And it places it squarely upon God. And God alone. Because how is the Gospel revealed? Right? Ultimately from God, Paul says. Right? The message we declare is the message He declared which came from God. God Himself. And so even the revelation of the Gospel shows to us, and how it came to us, shows to us our inability to, in our minds or thoughts, ascend up to God. Right? How the Gospel was revealed to man shows us our, our inability through human improvement or good works to climb up to God. We see that there is not one thing that you and I can do by our own power to, to get to God through Christ unless God alone is pleased to reveal it to us. And that is what Paul is saying is the, is the case with him. And in order to show that, that his calling and that his message was from God, in order that the saints would be convinced of this fact, he goes on to demonstrate then in verses 13 and 14 that he had no reason to turn to the Gospel. In his eyes, as a Jew, no reason to turn to the Gospel. His life in terms of his Judaism were amazing. Right? They were great. And so we have to ask the question, why the change? Right? Why the change in belief? Paul's point, it's all of God. It's all of God. And to show that, then he, he recounts his former life in Judaism to the saints in the churches of Galatia. And so this is going to be our first point then this morning. We'll call it Paul pre-conversion. Paul pre-conversion. Look with me at verses 13 and 14, please. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. What's Paul saying? Remember, everybody, I was the one who was trying to destroy Christianity. I was the one who was trying to obliterate the faith. Right? Exterminate, eradicate Christianity from the face of the earth. I right? remember at the end of uh, Acts chapter 7, 
We're told when, when Stephen is, is stoned to death that, that Paul approved of the execution of Stephen. Think even about how Paul describes his own life in Acts chapter 26 in verses 9 through 11. Hear what Paul has to say before King Agrippa. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all synagogues, tried to make them blaspheme, and in my raging fury against them, I persecuted them even in foreign cities. I mean, Paul had such an animus for the church, did he not? He describes it as a raging fury. And so we see that, that Paul was not a sympathetic character to the Christian movement, was he? So that's not the reason Paul was converted. He hated the Christian message. He wanted to destroy it so that he never heard of it again. So it's not as if Paul had some Christian friends who over time convinced him of the, of the gospel message and, and that's why he turned from Judaism to Christianity. No, that's not it, Paul says. But neither is it this. Neither did Paul convert from Judaism to Christianity because he wasn't thriving in his religion. And so he was looking for something else that maybe would, would make him feel good about himself, that he could thrive in and, and do good in and feel good in. Isn't that oftentimes what a lot of people do? Maybe if you grow up in one religion and you become kind of disenchanted with it, you go and look for it in other places. Right? And so you try different, different religions. Right? That's not what, what Paul did either. Because we're told Paul was, was excelling greatly in his religion. Right? Paul was a rising star in Judaism. You need to understand that he was a student of uh, Gamaliel which we're told about in Acts 5.34. And Gamaliel was the grandson of Hillel. And Hillel was a famous scribe and rabbi who died in, in 15 AD. And as the grandson of someone who was highly respected, Gamaliel likewise was highly respected as well. That's exactly what we read in Acts 5.34. That he was a Pharisee who was a teacher of the law who was held in honor by all people. And Paul was his pupil. Not just any pupil. He was the head of the class. And as such, he was zealous for the traditions of Judaism. And even more so, he was zealous for the traditions of the Pharisees. Which doesn't always line up with the Old Testament, does it? Jesus demonstrated that many times. It's the traditions of the elders, of the Pharisees, that Jesus rebukes in Matthew 15. Remember, he, he tells them that those doctrines they teach are the, are the commandments of men, and yet we need to understand that, that those men didn't view it that way. And, and Paul certainly did not view it that way. Right? Even when Paul was on this great rampage against the church, we need to understand that Paul never stopped and said, I think I'm committing sin here. No, Paul believed that what he was doing, he was doing for God. Right? That he was helping God and getting rid of these blasphemers from the face of the earth. His zeal was such that, that it was an indication to Paul in his persecution of God's people, of his commitment towards God, of his commitment towards Judaism. 
in his persecution. It was to Paul an indication of how truly righteous he was. And so Paul sang to the saints in the churches of Galatia, what reason did I have to leave Judaism? What reason? I had none at all. I was the poster child for what a good Jew looked like. I was zealous for pursuing God and my right standing before God through my good works. Why would I want the Gospel? The Gospel speaks directly against everything that Paul held up as important. The Gospel said, you must let go of your own righteousness and lay hold to an alien righteousness. The Gospel says you can do nothing to contribute to your own salvation. And so, that was what Paul was holding on to for so long. It was a message that, that Paul didn't want to listen to. Now in this statement though, brothers and sisters, in, in verses 13 and 14, there's a very, very valuable lesson that I want us all to get out of it. A very valuable lesson. What Paul does here in verses 13 and 14, what Paul does in Acts 26, which I've already recounted for you, uh, is the same thing Paul does in Acts 22 when he's brought before the tribune. And the same thing that he does in Philippians chapter 3, if you remember Philippians chapter 3, where he recounts his former life. And as he recounts his former life, I, w- I want us to really see what he's doing. Right? What Paul is doing is that he is making an, an open confession of his sinful past. Right? Paul makes an open confession of his sinful past here in verses 13 and 14. He makes no excuses for it. He does not try to justify it. He does not soften his sin. But he is truthful about it. Too many times, Christians try to play down their sin. Oftentimes, we don't even call it sin. Maybe we call it mistakes we made in our past. Christians today try to downplay our faults, excuse our sinful behavior prior to conversion. Why is that? Well, I think oftentimes Christians look at someone like Paul who is overtly wicked and we say, well, I wasn't like that. But let us see, brothers and sisters, that that is that's holding on to self-righteousness still. Right? Self-righteousness is something we all must let go. Right? By nature, we do not lack pride. But by nature, we do lack humility, don't we? And so here's the lesson I want us all to to get from what Paul is saying here. And that is this. We need uh, to see the need for the self-humbling that Paul practiced. We need to see the need for the self-humbling that Paul practiced. Now ultimately, the ability for one to humble themselves is a grace of God. God must give us the grace to humble ourselves. It's a work of the Spirit inside of us to provide us a true understanding of who we are as we are. It is God we must ask to help us to to see that when we look at at a vile person such as Paul or a vile person Maybe someone you work with or that you come across on the street, that when you look upon that vile person, 
you would see the image of yourself in them. You see, brothers and sisters, we are a people prone to conceit when we look at others. We are prone to conceit. But remember that it was conceit that cast the devil out of hell. But it was conceit that cast our first parents out of the garden. Right? See this, it's a low heart. A low heart is one that is ready to be filled up by God, not a proud one. If you're one of those people who said, well, I was pretty good, even as an unbeliever. There wasn't that much sin for me to repent of. Maybe even as a believer today, I'm, I'm a pretty, pretty good person. I'm not, I'm not that wicked myself, like all these other people out there. Right? We need to see that you're leaving very little room in your heart for God to fill it up. This is why we must empty ourselves. We must empty ourselves. Because the more you empty yourself, the more there is for God to fill up in you. We need to have what the Puritans called a a holy humiliation about ourselves. This is what we see in the prophet Isaiah, isn't it? Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. Woe is me, for I am a man that is lost. Holy humiliation is what we see in Luke 18 in the parable of the uh, Pharisee and tax collector. When the tax collector wouldn't even look up to the heavens but beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You see, brothers and sisters, a, a Christian's heart will not try to diminish the reality of their own wickedness. But rather... They will have a right estimation of it. And they will confess it before God. It is these, right, those who have humble souls before God, who can have full assurance that their soul is safe and secure in the arms of God. Right? Because it is the ones who have humble souls who realize who they are, who recognize who God is, and see their need every single day to look to Him and to live in Him, and not themselves. Also, though, brothers and sisters, we're not just to have a holy humiliation, but we are to join that holy humiliation with a hope, just as Paul did. So that we see ourselves rightly, that we are rotten sinners before God, But we have a hope, knowing that Jesus came to die for that sin. That for those who trust in Christ, we have forgiveness of that sin. And when God looks upon us, He does not see our filthy rags, but He sees the the righteousness of Christ. It is Christ who carries us up to God to be our all in all. One Puritan writer said this. I believe it was Thomas Watson, but it's a quote I'll never forget. One I hope you guys will never forget either. And he says this. He says that the soul has two eyes. The soul has two eyes. One, to look upon itself with vileness in order that we might be humbled. And the second one, and maybe... More importantly, the second eye of the soul 
is to fasten itself to the mercy of Christ. Because it is Christ and His mercy that always lifts up the humble soul. And isn't it Satan who doesn't want us to have that first eye of the soul? He doesn't want us to see our our vileness, does he? He doesn't want us to be humbled, but he wants us to be puffed up. He wants us to, to maybe take credit for what God alone has done in our lives, but Paul is having none of it. He recognizes that his salvation, his conversion from Judaism to Christianity, right? his continuing on to push forward in the faith, his preaching to the Gentile nations, is all of God. All of the grace of God. And Paul had nothing to contribute of himself to it. This is why then he goes on to, to descri- this is what he goes on to describe then in verses uh, 15 to 17. Please look with me there. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I, I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. This is our second point then, which will be uh, Paul's conversion. And this is uh, our, our last point as well. So our second point, Paul's conversion. So we have to ask the question, as we look at verses 15 to 17, is uh, who was the cause of Paul's conversion? It's God. It was God. God alone. And this is why Paul now spent so much time. I hope you recognize this. This is why Paul spent verses 13 and 14 setting up his former life in Judaism so that you might see that very thing that he now presents to you in verses 15 to 17, that it is all of God. It was all of God. He had no reason, he demonstrated, to turn to the Gospel. The only reason he turned to the Gospel was because of God. Because of the grace of God. And so the reason that he is now who he is is solely owing to the grace of God. And he shows this uh, in a few different ways. The, f- the first way that he points out that, that his salvation was all of God is by saying that it was determined by God before he was even born. What is that called? What do we call that? Election, don't we? Right? He's describing election. Uh, it's the same thing that we see in Romans chapter 9, isn't it? When Paul uses Jacob and Esau as an example. Right? Jacob's uh, sovereign election had nothing to do with Jacob, did it? It had everything to do with God. In Romans chapter 9, I believe it's verse 11, uh, Paul says, Though they had not yet been born, had done nothing good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, and Esau I have hated. And so if it's not us, if it's not Jacob, if it's not Paul, then who is it? Right? It's God. It's God. Where does that the election of God spring forth out of? Well, it springs forth out of the goodwill and pleasure of God. And that's what Paul says here in Romans chapter 9. That Jacob was chosen not based on anything that he had done. God isn't looking down the corridor of time and saying, oh, based on those works or based on the fact that I know he'll believe, I'm going to save him. 
No, Jacob had nothing to do with his salvation. Paul had nothing to do with his salvation. It was, it was all of God. Right? Jacob didn't move God to save Jacob. Paul didn't move God to save Paul. God moved God to save Paul and Jacob. And Paul points this out early, uh, later in Ephesus uh, when he writes there in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. When he says, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, in love He predestined us for the adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Right? That's why we have been saved. That's why God elected you because it was the, the purpose of His will to do such. Right? We need to see, brothers and sisters, that we are all sinners. And as sinners, we have all forfeited the blessing of God. So that we are all in the same boat. All in the same playing field. The only thing that differentiates one from another is the sovereign will of God who chooses to save one and not another because of His will and for His glory. Right? We need to understand that. That's what Paul is, is pointing out here. Paul, though, not only is pointing out that it was all of God in election and choosing Him before the foundation of the world, but what Paul also though points out here in verses 15 to 17 is that it also was at a time determined by God when it shall actually occur, when it will actually be applied to Paul. Right? There was a definite time in history and Paul had no control over when that time would be. Right? He had no control over when he would be saved. God determined it. And that's true of all of us, isn't it? There's a, there's a, if you are the elect of God, if you have been elected before the foundations of the world, you have also have, a, have an appointed time in which God will, will save you. That He will call you by His grace. This is what we actually confess in our confession of faith. If you remember, those of you who come to Sunday school, chapter 10, paragraph 1, we discuss this. There we read this. Those whom God hath predestinated unto life, he is pleased in His appointed and accepted time effectually to call by His Word and Spirit out of the state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. And so we need to understand that, that prior to that moment in history that God chose to reveal His Son in Paul, Paul, like everyone else who comes into the world, was in a state of sin and death. Right, we need to understand that. He had no ability in himself to, to come to God through Christ in any way. And that the, the fact of the matter is also he wouldn't want to, would he? He wouldn't want to come to God anyway because in that state you are spiritually dead. And a dead person has no desires, do they? Right? A dead person is unable to move themselves, aren't they? Right? A dead person has no affections. So this is true of all who are in that state of sin and death. They are spiritually dead. And so they have no affections for Christ. They have no fond feelings for God. They have no desire to have communion and fellowship with the one true God. Their hearts are dead towards Him. This is why Jesus can say to the Jews who said to Him, Isn't this the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me 
draws him. And it was on that Damascus road that God made known what was in his hidden counsel, which was the hour of Paul's salvation. It was in that moment in history that God effectuated what He had determined from all ages. It was then that He effectually called Paul. Right? That, he, that He drew Paul to Himself, revealing the Son to Him, opening His heart, granting Him the willingness to believe. Right? Why does Paul in that moment believe and in no moment prior? It was because it was in that moment that God had determined that He would work in such a way that Paul would come to saving faith in Christ. That He would work upon the will of Paul in such a way that Paul would now desire Christ to be his Savior. It was on that Damascus road that God revealed Christ to Paul. That's the means by which Paul is saved. Paul told the saints of his election. He told them, of how it was all of God. He told them now of His effectual calling, how it was all of God. But He also tells us the means by which He was saved. And He said He was called by the grace of God who was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. You see, nobody is saved but the one who has been saved through faith in Christ. Christ is the only way of salvation. And the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me, or no one comes to the Father, but by me. I also, though, want us to, to recognize this, that, that preposition too, where we're told that it pleased Him to reveal the Son to me, can also be translated and should also be translated as in. He revealed the Son in me. So that both are right. That God revealed the Son to Paul, but He also revealed Christ in Paul. And he revealed them to Paul how? Well, with saving knowledge. Right? He revealed Christ to Paul in His person and work so that Paul would, would come to, to saving faith in Christ. Right? He, he revealed to Paul that, that Christ was the God-man. He revealed to Paul that Christ was the, the mediator who was to atone for the sins of of all who would ever believe. And it was that one that, that Paul trusted in. But we need to see that it wasn't just intellectual kind of assent and trust that Paul had. Because Jesus wasn't just revealed to Paul. He was revealed in Paul. He was revealed in Paul how? Well, through the Spirit of Christ that dwelt inside the, the heart of Paul. This is what we call uh, union with Christ. It's that union that Jesus Himself speaks of in in John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. He says this, And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. And who is the Spirit of truth? Romans chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ 
does not belong to him. Listen to what Paul says. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Do you see, in order to receive the, the blessings and the privileges of, of the life and death of Christ, he must be in you. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you. True religion, brothers and sisters, is not just knowing facts. True religion is having a relationship with Jesus Christ in such a way that you are in Him and He is in you. And this is what the Judaizers lacked, isn't it? They had an intellectual knowledge, an assent of the person of Christ. But Jesus did not live inside of them. They were not united to Christ by true and living faith. For if they were, they would not have distorted the Gospel. But they would have known the one true Gospel. They would have been able to to spot it out. They wouldn't have persecuted God's Apostle Paul. They wouldn't have been man-pleasers, but rather they would have been concerned with being servants of Christ. And so, Paul in saying these things is having the saints ask themselves this question as he recounts his conversion experience to them. And it is this question he wants us all to ask ourselves. Do I belong to God? How do you know? Well, does Christ live inside of me? Does Christ live inside of me? That is a question we all must ask ourselves. Because the answer in the negative means that you are still in the state of of sin and death. Because it's only the Spirit of Christ who alone makes alive the sinner. There is no question that that Christ was in Paul, was there? Because as soon as as Paul is told what to do, the Spirit inside of him stirs him up to to go and do that very thing. To to go immediately and go and, and preach to the Gentiles. That's what we see in verses 16 and 17. Paul says, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now, what is Paul trying to prove by saying that? Well, ultimately this, that it is Christ and not the apostles who set him apart. That's what he's saying. He's saying, my ministry is independent of everyone else but God. My ministry and my apostleship is independent of the other apostles. It's independent of the church in Jerusalem. I didn't need any of them because I got marching orders from God by Himself. By His very own voice. And so Paul proves that statement that he makes in in those opening two verses that we read in verses 11 and 12. Showing that his election, that his effectual calling, his conversion, that his ministry had nothing at all to do with men and everything to do with God. Now, although, brothers and sisters, our conversion stories don't match up with Paul in the exact same way as we did not have God come to us and, and teach us the Gospel Himself, 
by divine revelation. In every other way, what Paul describes here in verses 15 to 17 of his conversion experience is true of every single one of us here, isn't it? It's true of every single one of us here. If you are a saint, if you are someone who has been elected unto salvation by God, it is because your name, along with Paul's, was written in the Lamb's Book of Life before you were ever born. And it was written there not because of anything that you did, but rather out of the sheer goodwill and pleasure of God. And it was written there not because of your works, but rather because of the works of Him who called you. And that's why your name is written there. Or you came to faith in God also, as Paul did. When God determined you would come to faith in Him, and not a moment sooner. But for those of you here today, maybe who, who do not believe, that doesn't mean you just sit around and you say, well, if I'm, if I'm elect and God has determined a time when I'll be saved, it'll happen when He wants it to happen. And so I'll just do nothing. No, remember, brothers and sisters, that God uses means to accomplish His purposes. Which is why in the book of Hebrews in chapter 3, the people are told, Today, if you hear the voice of Christ, do not harden your hearts. Right? This is why the Gospel is, is a command, is it not? Repent and believe in the Gospel. It's a command to man to, to do something, to, to respond in faith, knowing that it is God and God alone who has the power to transfer us from that domain of darkness to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sin. I want us to see though one other thing and that is this. Look at what the Gospel does. Look at what the Gospel does. That the Gospel changes our lives. It changes our lives. Look at what it did to Paul. It took someone as, as wretched and vile as Paul. And it supernaturally made him a new creature. And in doing so, God made Paul a trophy of his goodness and of his grace. But I want us to see that that is true of all of you here today who believe. You all are trophies right, of God's goodness and of God's grace. Right? You are what you are, not because of you, but because of God. You are what you are, not because of your works, but because of God's works. And Paul understood this. If there was value in keeping the law for one's righteousness, Paul would have remained in Judaism. But it was Christ who, who opened Paul's eyes to see, to reveal to Paul that the, that the law reveals sin, it reveals death, it reveals wrath and judgment, and that the only way of escape that is to look to He who, who conquered them all on behalf of everyone who would ever believe. And so if you are in Christ today, brothers and sisters, you have much to be thankful for, don't you? We'll bring this message to a close with just a couple quotations from a, a Dutch Reformed theologian, Wilhelmus Abrakel, who talks about uh, thankfulness. And I think it's very uh, applicable to our, our text here today. He said this, Believers should meditate on the unsearchable grace and goodness of God that such wretched and sinful men may be so intimately united with the Son of God. 
saying this, that much meditations on this will most wondrously set the heart aflame with love for God. And then he concludes with an exhortation. He says this, Arise then, satisfy, and fill yourself with Him. Brothers and sisters, may we heed that exhortation. And not only be filling ourselves up and satisfying ourselves with Christ today, but every day of our lives. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Most importantly, though, thank You for opening up our eyes to be able to understand Your Word so that it would no longer condemn us, but rather, through it, we may be justified. Uh, We thank You, O Father, that our salvation and our continuance in it is not dependent on us, but it's solely dependent on the God who has called us. And You, O Lord, do not fail. And You will continue to give all the grace and mercy and help that is needed to ensure that one day when this life is complete, uh, that we will be with You in glory. Lord, we pray that You would help us then to uh, think about these things. That You would help us to not be so prideful and conceited, but rather, Lord, that You would help create humility within us, that You would prick our conscience, cause us to see our need to cry out to You, that we might daily humble ourselves before God as we recognize that everything that we are, everything that we have, and everything that we shall be is because of You. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.